Well, as we begin, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you and before your word this morning asking that you would please work in and through your word, that you would remind us of the great gospel that we have inherited, that was preached to us, and that we have believed. And I pray that you would cause what we look at this morning to drive that gospel deeper into our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin with a simple rhetorical question this morning, and that is, are you a Protestant? Are you a Protestant? By your attendance here this morning, there's a high likelihood that you would answer yes, or if you don't know, I will answer for you that you're in a Protestant church this morning. Um, But if you say yes, that you're a Protestant, what is it that you are protesting? Because that is the basis of understanding what a Protestant is, is that we are protesting something. And today is what has begun to be called Reformation Sunday, in which we celebrate the start of the Protestant church. And... The reason it is today, and it's the end, it's usually the Sunday in October that's closest to uh, the 31st, so usually the last Sunday in October, and that is because on October 31st in 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses against the Roman Catholic Church to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 30, verse 15, 17. And that event has been seen as the start of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. And while celebrating or, or remembering uh, Reformation Sunday has not been a yearly practice here at Foothill, I believe that it has value for us as a congregation. As we look back, as Pastor Art said at our heritage, where we have come from and how the gospel came down to us. I'm reminded of the oft-repeated quote that says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I'm afraid that Christians today do not know and therefore do not remember what God did in the Reformation in the 16th century. In particular, many think that the Reformation is over. And that the issues that were battled over and fought over in that day are no longer issues today. I think that Rome and the Protestant church are now essentially aligned. And I believe nothing could be further from the truth. Because what was at stake in 16th century Europe was the eternal destiny of mankind. What was at stake was the true nature of salvation. What was at stake was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's just as important that we get the gospel right as it was for Christians of a former time. We must be absolutely clear of what the good news of Christianity is, or people will be damned to hell without salvation. This is serious business. It was serious then, it's serious today. It cost men's and women's lives 500 years ago, and the gospel still costs lives today. 
And if we don't remember what God did then to recover his glory in the gospel, the church, and the Bible, then we risk losing the truth in our own day. Now, to give us some context, when we speak of the Reformation, we speak of a period of societal upheaval in Europe during the 1500s. It's centered on this this period of upheaval, centered on theological and ecclesiastical concerns, but it had ramifications for authority structures throughout the Western world, and therefore society was turned upside down through this period. The Reformers, as we call them, those who led the movement, and they did this in different regions and in different ways. But they were people such as, as I've already mentioned, Martin Luther in Germany, or John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, or Thomas Cramner and and William Tyndale in England, or John Knox in Scotland. And as these men and many other men and women challenged the theology and the church of the day, they helped to recover the gospel as we know it and treasure it today. These are things that we can take for granted today, that they were actually fought over, that they were such a big deal. But as we reflect upon the story, we see the amazing providence of God in bringing and recovering this gospel of grace for His church. And so this morning, we just with the time that we have, we're going to look briefly at what God did in the 16th century through the Protestant Reformation. And I believe that you'll walk away with greater appreciation for the gospel of grace that you hold dear. And so this morning, we're going to look at three results of the Reformation of the 16th century so that we would produce, it would produce gratitude in our hearts today. I want us to delight in the gospel. And as we look at what God did 500 years ago, I believe that will be the case for us today. The first result that we see coming out of the Protestant Reformation is is that the gospel was recovered. And this is what I've really already hinted and, and spoken of. But let's look closely about how that gospel was recovered. We need to rewind in our mind and think about what society and life was like for the average Christian there at the dawn of the 16th century. rather. And it looked, in many ways, it was similar. In many ways, it was very different. Christianity was the dominant religion. And so people went to church. Everybody went to church on Sunday. But we need to remember that it was not a society in which there were many different denominations as we have today. It was a society in which there was one church, and that was the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, which was ruled by the Pope in Rome, Italy, and this church held sway over millions of people, and the doctrine that it taught framed the worldview of all that lived in Europe at this time. It's hard for us to grasp how a single church, a single institution would have such a dominant sway across even uh, uh, political boundaries. I mean, this wasn't just one government that was dictating something for all of its people. This was a church that affected multiple governments, multiple countries across Europe. So what was the experience of a typical Christian at this time? What what would have characterized their Christian life? 
Just a few things for us this morning. First is that they would have felt like they lacked access to God. Felt like they lacked access to God. You see, the average uh, person in the Middle Ages, this is coming out of the medieval period, would have been very devout. They would have desired to follow God. They would have gone, as I said, gone to church on a regular basis. They would have loved to, uh, to uh, read the Bible, to hear, to hear the truth of God. And they would have followed the teaching of the church. But personally, they would have felt a certain distance from God and difficulty in accessing Him. And this was because of the theology that, that wasn't derived from the Scriptures, but had been built up over hundreds of years and had been distorted. In such a way that God the Father was seemed so distant and, and unapproachable. He was, as it were, almost behind, a big, uh, behind doors that couldn't be reached. Because he was so holy and so beyond us. You go, well, what about Jesus? Well, Jesus was certainly seen as the one sacrificed for us, but he was also seen as the judge who was going to come and, and judge all the sinners who didn't follow and didn't live holy lives. And so there's a sense in which Jesus himself was feared and not the believers didn't feel close to him as well. Because he was coming with a sword to judge the earth. And so therefore, people were encouraged to pray to Mary. Because, I mean, if you want to reach God, then you need to go through Jesus. And if you want to go to Jesus, then, well, who would listen to really listen to Jesus? I mean, certainly Jesus wouldn't listen to me, the poor, pitiful sinner that I am, but he would listen to his mom. I mean, everyone's got to listen to their mom. And so, pray to Mary, and Mary uh, will certainly be able to bring your request to the Son and take it to the Father. And so Mary became one that people directed their prayers, along with many other saints, uh, as saints uh, were officially not to be worshipped, but only venerated, but that was too easily turned into worship as well. Secondly, they also lived in superstition. Again, remember, this is coming out of the medieval period, and it's, it's hard for us in our modern post-enlightenment scientific world to think about an average everyday life that was dominated by, uh, by superstition. We think these things are silly today, but we understand how this came to be. Christianity, as it, as it moved up from what we know as the biblical world, right, from Israel and into the Roman Empire at the end of the, the first century, and it began to spread up into Europe, into new lands, they, their evangelism strategy was a little bit flawed, not only did they bring the gospel, which they believed could save, but rather than saying the gods that you currently worship, tribes, are, are, are false gods and need to be done away with, they began to bring the gospel in of Jesus Christ and began to, to mix the gospel with current practices, pagan practices, as it went into those new lands. And so what we have resulting several hundred years later is this mix between pagan ideology and understanding as well at, mixed with, with biblical Christianity. And so as, as this superstition of evil spirits and, and things that are around them uh, began to mix with Christianity, this caused people to live in fear. They lived in fear that there were evil spirits that would attack them and they would blame these evil spirits for sickness and for trouble. People would then look for superstitious solutions to their problems. 
such as it's recorded of monks. And again, so this is, these are those who are supposedly religious authorities, supposedly uh, teaching what the Bible says, but they too had their own thinking uh, distorted. It's recorded that monks would wash the bones of saints in water and then give that water to an ill person to drink as a remedy. You go, how? where is that in the Bible? Where, where do you get that? But they thought it would help. In order to have successful crop yields, they would have a ceremony in which they would walk around the fields with the local priest saying certain incantations in order to keep the evil spirits away from affecting their crops. People would gather at tombs of saints in hope that there would be some miracle to happen simply being near this tomb. They believed that salt or water or wax that was blessed by the priest had supernatural power to protect them from evil spirits or to cure animals or to even help women in labor. And so this superstition was, was all around and intermixed into their daily life and even taught by the religious authorities in their lives. And so this amounted to people viewing their world spiritually, very spiritually, but not necessarily biblically. But the third feature I want you to, to think about this morning that characterized the average Christian's life in the 16th century was that they lacked assurance of salvation. And this is key for our understanding of how the gospel was recovered. As we said, the Roman Catholic Church dominated life in the medieval era. Everyone in medieval Europe was baptized as an infant into the church and therefore into the state. So this is that, that melding together of church and state, right? Where uh, if you lived in a certain territory, say France, then you were also part of the church there in France. There was no such thing as a Frenchman or a German or an Italian or an Englishman who was not a part of the church. So if you, your national identity was also linked with your spiritual or ecclesiastical identity as well. And so this, the Roman Catholic Church, as it dominated all these nations and life during this time, they had set up the, the system of church life through ceremonies and rituals, particularly what is known as the seven sacraments, which were baptism, the Eucharist or the Mass, marriage, ordination, confirmation, confession or penance, and final unction. Now, these were obvious concrete activities that the people could participate in. And the church taught that as people did these things, they would receive grace from God. In other words, even though you have faith in Christ, you need to perform these rites and ceremonies in order to have grace mediated to you. And this is particularly where the gospel was distorted. In this sacramental system... Believers received righteousness by first being baptized. They taught that at the time of baptism, which again took place for them as an infant, that righteousness or justification was infused into the person. So in other words, the, 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 the person was given righteousness and they needed to then keep up that righteousness or continue to, to, to keep their justification. But that righteousness could be lost by committing a mortal sin, such as adultery or murder or anything else that the church deemed a mortal sin. So, as people went through life, no doubt they committed 
sins and they, and they needed to have their righteousness restored. And so that's where the, the sacrament of penance or confession would come in. Penance involved the believer confessing their sin to a priest. The priest then announcing the absolution of that person's sin and then that person performing a work of satisfaction. A work of satisfaction. Now, works of satisfaction were duties that were done in order to earn merit from God, whereby He restores the believer to justification. So, again, think of this. You're a believer. You've committed sin. You need to have that sin forgiven and dealt with. And so you go to the priest. You confess it to the priest. The priest announced absolution to you, but you then got to do some work of satisfaction or to gain this righteousness back to restore the believer to justification. Now, the Roman Catholic Church taught that there were only a few people throughout history that did enough good things, that did enough righteousness and were in such a state of merit that when they died, they would go directly to heaven. Only a few people. The vast majority of people, it was taught that because they still had impurities in their life at the time of death, that they then, when they died, would go to purgatory. Purgatory, a place that the Roman Catholic Church teaches is between life here in this, on this earth and heaven and is a, considered a place of purging, hence the word purgatory. And it was there that the average person would be cleansed of their impurities. And, and there, during that time, this could take a while, it could be short, it could be long, uh, but during that time they would be molded and shaped into righteousness to where then they would actually be righteous and therefore be able to go into heaven. Now, just think about what kind of gospel this is. This is a, a gospel in which you're never quite sure if, number one, you're going to make it to heaven, or maybe, or how long it will be till you make it to heaven. There's still so much that has to be done. You're trying to work so hard in this life so you don't mess things up, so hopefully you have enough merit. And then you, what, what awaits you is purgatory in which you know you still have probably years to work off and to gain more righteousness. But the assurance wasn't there. I mean, how long do you think you would need to spend in a place like that to clean off the impurities you still have in your life? I know it would take me quite a while. I, I'm still a long way from looking like Christ, who is the image of perfect righteousness. I like how R.C. Sproul stated it. He said, if I had to go to purgatory to be cleansed of the impurities that remain in my life, I would have a hard time knowing when my parole date was coming. If R.C. Sproul says that, then you know that we would have a long way to go as well. And this is really true of all of us. Now, one other factor that would, would factor into this is the, the selling of indulgences. The Roman Catholic Church would sell indulgences 
And these indulgences were pieces of paper that could be purchased by parishioners in order to take years off your stay in purgatory. In other words, you're buying merit to be credited to your account so that you wouldn't have to wait as long to attain actual righteousness in purgatory. People could also get indulgences by visiting relics. And so relics were proliferated throughout this, this medieval period in which uh, churches and cities and, and were claimed to have these holy relics, a piece of wood from the cross of our Lord, a piece of, of hair from, from the Virgin Mary, or uh, some, 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 beard from the, uh, some hair from the beard of John the Baptist. And, and they had all of these bizarre relics that they claimed were legit and uh, there was no way you could prove that, and yet people would go to view these relics hoping that they would get years knocked off of their time in purgatory so that they could have some sort of assurance. Now these indulgences were essentially a transaction taking place. I pay money for an indulgence, I get it I get this piece of paper and what is being told to me is that through the work of the Pope, I have now withdrawn some merit, some righteousness out of this heavenly bank account called the treasury of merit. And it's been withdrawn from there through the Pope to me so that now it's credited to my account. And what it was claimed is that this treasury of merit was this, this bank account of righteousness was there because of those few people that, through history, that have enough merit and enough righteousness so that when they died, they could actually deposit some into that treasury so that us lowly folks could have something to receive and be able to withdraw from. And so these super-righteous saints had stacked up some excess merit, and the Pope, who had the keys of heaven, had the authority to withdraw from that bank account and therefore, he sold the indulgences. So you could only get these indulgences through the Pope in order to get the righteousness that you needed. Therefore, there was the terrifying reality that the believer in the medieval church could not know with absolute certainty that he would make it to heaven. Or he may think he would get there, but he didn't know how long he would take in purgatory. And so, the doctrine of salvation... For the Roman Catholic Church was, and frankly still is, faith plus works, grace plus merit, my righteousness plus the righteousness of Christ. And this created, wreaked havoc in the consciences of believers at the time. And it's the early adulthood of Martin Luther that really illustrates this lack of assurance. Luther was studying at university to be a lawyer, but he was on his way back to university after a visit with his parents when a thunderstorm came and, and struck while he's journeying back to university. And there upon the road, a lightning bolt struck a tree that was right next to him. And Luther cries out uh, to God and asks that God would spare him if he became a monk. And God spared him, and so he was good upon his vow, and he became an Augustinian monk, which upset his father and all sorts of things. But it was there while he was then studying theology that he sought to live more devotedly for Christ. And this was what the monastic system was, was people who'd set apart their lives in order to live 
for Christ. But he sought assurance of pardon and of eternal life. He wanted to know that he was truly forgiven and that he was truly would receive eternal life. This led him through hours and hours of confession. His conscience was racked with guilt. And he would go into the confessional and he'd confess to the priest. And the, confi- the priest would announce that his sins were, were forgiven. And, and, and yet he would confess more and confess more and confess more. And then he would step out of the confessional and then he would, he would question whether his motives were actually legit or not. And he would go back in and confess for his wrong motives in that confession that he just did. And it was this perpetual cycle that he wasn't quite sure that he'd done enough or that he was authentic enough or that he's sincere enough. And so it led him to more and more striving. And his spiritual mentor and priest that he confessed to, Johann von Salpitz, said, Luther, you never confess anything interesting. I mean, you're not confessing great and amazing sins that, that, are, that are in your life. You're confessing the piddliest little things. And I'm getting bored. I'm falling asleep here. And yet Luther was so plagued by this. Staupitz told him, you need to just love God. And he says, I don't love God, I hate God. Because I can't get myself clean. I can't find assurance. He felt that God's holy requirements kept him in a prison and there was no way out. And that was until he discovered the gospel, the true gospel. And his discovery came as he studied the book of Romans. The book of Romans, I invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. These verses that we know so well and yet had been enshrouded in mystery and not fully developed or understood at this time. Romans chapter 1, where the book of Romans, Paul's expositing, explaining the gospel to the believers in Rome. And he begins here in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, And also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, as Luther studied this and read this, particularly in the original language, the Greek, that was again, being recovered at this time, going back to the original languages, he realized that righteousness or justification or right standing before God could be his, could be his possession through faith and faith alone. He didn't need to go through more motions. He didn't have to worry about being sincere enough. He simply needed to believe the righteous shall live by faith. Because it's salvation for everyone who believes, not everyone who believes and provides enough merit. It's salvation 
for everyone who believes. Simply as that. And so in contrast to Rome's teaching on salvation and particularly justification, the reformers taught that believers were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they captured these realities in, through Latin, these Latin phrases that are still have been passed down to us as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola being the the Latin word for only or alone. And so sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And as we'll see a little bit later, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. These five solas became the cry of the Reformation to emphasize the the trueness of the gospel as found in the Bible. As the Reformers went back to the Word of God, they studied the Scriptures, they came to find out that we are not justified by faith plus works, grace plus merit, or our righteousness plus that of Christ. But it's by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And so it's important to realize that as we talk about the Reformation, we talk about the Reformers, they did not invent the gospel. They did not formulate the gospel. They simply discovered what it already said in the Bible. They discovered what Jesus taught and what Paul taught in the Bible. And this reality of justification by faith alone is found throughout the New Testament. I want you to see a a few of these verses where it comes through abundantly clear. Turn first to, uh, let's stay in Romans if you're you're still there and go to Romans 3. It's a couple chapters over. Again, this is Paul's in-depth explanation of the gospel. And we see that it is through faith in Jesus Christ by His grace. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, look at this, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified... By merit? No. By His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. There's righteousness as given to us through the gospel to be received by faith, not to be earned. Paul makes that clear. He continues To make that clear, flip over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians, a key book again for the reformers. This is where Paul is battling for the gospel in light of the Judaizers, those who told the believers in Galatia that they needed to follow certain Jewish practices. They needed to follow the law or be circumcised in order to have salvation. And Paul says no, because that would be faith plus works. And it's by faith alone that we're justified. 
And so you can understand how Luther, in his own discovery of the gospel, came to Galatians and says, ah, Paul is battling the same thing I'm battling in my day. And so he, he uh, loved Galatians. And we see this in Galatians 2. Look in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The New Testament is incredibly clear. And that is why the Reformers could stand up in their day and say, we must believe that salvation, that justification is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, because that's what the Bible teaches. This isn't just my preference. This is what God has revealed. And we must fight for this. And so we can see, you, you no doubt remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but is a gift so that no one may boast. It's by grace through faith. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches that there is no extra righteousness needed. Christ's righteousness was sufficient for you and for me. There's no extra works that are needed. Faith alone secures these blessings for us. Even this faith is a gift of God and it's available to all. And there's no teamwork in salvation. God does not need our help to save us. In fact, we can contribute nothing to our salvation, right? Salvation is of the Lord from first to last. It's His gift. It's an unmerited gift. We didn't earn this gift. We didn't do anything righteous that God should say, hey, you've done enough. I'm going to give this to you now. No, that wouldn't be grace. That would be wages that we, that we deserve. But grace says we don't deserve it, and He simply gives it to us of His kindness. And love. And folks, this gospel of that is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, has huge ramifications for our everyday lives today in 2019. This is not an outdated gospel. This is our very life. This is where our salvation is found too. And it's because that this salvation is by God's grace and simply through faith that we don't have to be anxious whether we're going to make it to heaven. This is ultimately where the assurance of the believer comes from, is the fact that we are justified by faith. And that is the promise of God, that if we place our faith in Jesus, that he will save us and that his righteousness is sufficient. And that I need to do nothing more. I can do nothing more. I can't add to my salvation at all. He has done it all. We have been justified by grace. We don't have to question whether today we're accepted by God. We don't have to earn our acceptance before God to try to make God smile upon us or, or to be happy towards us. We simply need to trust in Jesus, the one who has done it all for us, and know that because we're in Jesus, we are already accepted. We obey not in order to gain acceptance before God. We obey because we already have been accepted. 
We've been justified by His grace. And therefore then we want to obey and live for Him because He's secured our righteousness already. The true gospel is a gospel that says we don't earn anything, but we live out of what Christ has already earned for us in that amazing reality. You see, the Roman Catholic Church has been getting this wrong for a long time. Rome says you need to actually become righteous before God will declare you righteous. But Romans 4 verse 5 clearly says that God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly, which means that he takes the wicked and declares them righteous. Not that they have become righteous and then he declares them righteous. And this is the good news because we are all sinners and we've all fallen short and we need to be declared righteous in the state that we are in. And then the work of sanctification is God is transforming us so that we might look more like Jesus. You see, the Roman Catholic Church, while it speaks of grace and it speaks of faith and it speaks of Christ, it misses that key word, sola, only, alone. And therefore, it preaches a different gospel. It preaches a damning gospel. It preaches a gospel where Christ's righteousness is not sufficient, God's grace is not powerful enough, and our faith is not enough. And that is not what the Bible teaches. And so let me be clear. Rome has not changed her ways in 500 years. And therefore, though we may share many similar views with the Roman Catholic Church on all number of societal issues, we do not share a common salvation and a common gospel. That is why we are Protestants. Because we are protesting that understanding of salvation, which we believe is wrong. So we can rejoice that we have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A salvation that you couldn't earn. A salvation that God has given freely to you through Christ. And we can praise God that he recovered that gospel through men like Martin Luther so that it might be passed down through the centuries that we could treasure it and hear it today. But this gospel wasn't the only thing that was recovered in the Reformation. The second result is that the Bible was recovered. First was the gospel was recovered. Secondly, the Bible was recovered. Now, all these points are connected. Uh, you, You can't recover the gospel without recovering the Bible because that is where the gospel is taught. And it's in the pages of the scripture the gospel is revealed. And so we see, as we look at the Reformation, that the Bible was recovered in three significant ways. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, sola scriptura. They believed that the Bible alone was the authority. The Bible alone was the standard for life and practice for the Christian and for the church. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, the Bible was important, but it wasn't the only authority. They held the Bible and church tradition, or the teaching of the magisterium, the official teaching of the church. And where they conflicted, it was often reinterpreted through the magisterium of the church to make it be whatever the church wanted it to be. And so the true message of the Bible did not come through loud and clear. The Bible and the church tradition functioned as twin heads of authority, and this resulted in many unbiblical practices and doctrine, as we've already seen. 
And so when the reformers rose up to make their case for why the church needs to change its ways, it wasn't, uh, they, they, they needed to, to show that, that it needed to stand on Scripture alone. And we see this, this showdown between the reformers who said Scripture alone and between the Roman Catholic Church who said Scripture and, and church authority or church tradition. We see it at the Diet of Worms, which is just a funny word for, funny statement for us English speakers. It didn't refer to something that was eaten, a Diet of Worms. A diet was a, a church council. Worms, Germany was the city, so it was a, a, a meeting in, in Worms. And um, this was the gathering where Luther was told to come and discuss his ideas. And he thought, oh great, they want to actually hear what I have to say. They want to hear uh, what the Bible says. And maybe we can actually have, an, have a great discussion about the gospel. But when he showed up, he was surprised to see that there was no discussion. There was no back and forth arguments. It was simply, Martin Luther, are these your works? He had all his books laid out on the table. And do you recant them? No conversation. And after much deliberation, he came before the council that was there, and he, says, he said this. He said, unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of the Scriptures or by clear arguments, since I believe neither the Pope nor the councils alone or by themselves it being evident that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am conquered or convinced by the Holy Scriptures quoted by me, and my conscience is bound to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. And there, before the church authorities, he says, I'm going to stand on Scripture alone, and if you can't show me from Scripture, then I remain unbudged. And that illustrates this principle of sola scriptura that spread throughout Europe and we, that we are beneficiaries of today. They believe that the doctrine and practice of the church were to be governed by nothing else but God's written revelation. And this is and must be our commitment today. We must see the Bible as the ultimate authority for our lives, for our church, and for our world. This is God's revelation to mankind, calling all people to submit and bow down before His Word. Because it's the Word of the Almighty, Sovereign Lord. And we know that the Scriptures alone are sufficient to order our lives and for us to follow behind, right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Jesus said in Matthew 4, in his, in his refutation to the devil, said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, talking to the Corinthians there, says that, that, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Not to go beyond what is written. And that is our calling today. To read what is written and to not go beyond it. This is what holds all of us accountable. 
the, the, the leaders, the elders of this church are not above the authority of God's word. We sit under the authority of God's word because Christ is Lord of this church and this is the word of our Lord and we all sit underneath that. That is what sola scriptura means and the implications for the church. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church believed that it was above the word and it could, it could interpret the word as it wanted to and therefore however it said, the Bible said, is that what, that's what the people needed to follow. And up until the Reformation, the average layman didn't know that anything was being taught falsely. That was because the Bible wasn't in a language they could even understand. Which brings us to the second way that the Reformers uh, recovered the Bible. And that was through Bible translation. Bible translation. Up to this point, the Bible was in Latin. And, and the people, and including most priests, didn't understand Latin. So a priest got up to preach his little homily and all he did was repeat some theologian or some other person from the church that he had heard because he couldn't read the Bible for himself. And yet because of the superstition of the words, they believed that the actual Latin words held certain kind of power and so they didn't want to tweak and, and mess with this understanding of God's word, this translation. But the Reformation, which was partly spawned by the Renaissance, which was that, that movement in which they went back to the sources, the original uh, Greek and Roman sources, and, and they began to read them in the original languages. And so for now scholars could read the, the Bible in the original language and compare it to the Latin and see that the Bible doesn't say, Jesus didn't preach, uh, do penance. He said, repent. And there's a big difference between do penance and repent. And yet when your Bible only says do penance, you think that's what God has said. But that's a translation problem. And for the first time, they were able to see that. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, publishing the New Testament in 1522, and then the whole Bible in 1534. And this gave the Germanic peoples God's word in their own tongue for the first time. And for the next 400 years, Luther's German Bible shaped the German language. It had huge ramifications. And with the invention of the movable type printing press uh, in the middle of the 15th century, written works were now able to be printed and distributed at a massive scale that was, that was unseen previously. Before, everything had to be hand-copied. Now you could produce multiple copies quickly and they could disseminate through the people. And so this meant that the average person could have a personal or a family copy of the Bible, which was a first in the church history. We take it for granted that we can hold copies of God's Word. We can tap to copies of God's Word. Copies that not only can we hold personally, but we can understand. And yet, this privilege we see coming out of the Reformation period. Particularly for us, the English language, we owe our debt to a man named William Tyndale. Tyndale devoted his life, his short life, to placing the Bible in the hands of every Englishman. He got so fed up with the local Catholic uh, priests and theology that was being taught there in English that he was just getting restless and, he's, and he wanted to get people the Bible. In fact, he he famously told a, a local Catholic priest there, he said, 
I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to know more Scripture than you. Because he knew when you unleash the Bible, God's Spirit ignites the hearts of his people. Well, Tyndale became a criminal for wanting to do this. He had to flee England. He traveled to Europe to complete his labor of love for his Lord and for his countrymen. And he published the New Testament in 1526 and got them smuggled back into England. And as soon as the authorities started to see them popping up on the streets of London, Tyndale became a marked man even more. A price was put on his head, and in 1535, Tyndale was betrayed by a friend and arrested, only to be burned at the stake in 1536. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. We see that in one way, God answered that prayer because less than 100 years later, an English king by the name of King James commissioned that a translation of the Bible be officially made in the, lang- in the English language. A translation we still have today known as the King James Version or King James Bible. And it, it had a remarkable impact on the English language and English people, much like uh, Luther's German Bible had upon the German people. And so today, the Bibles that we have on our laps and in our hands are there because at the time of the Reformation, men devoted themselves to the study of the Word of God and translated them so that the people might know the Word. The third way we see that the Bible was recovered in the Reformation was expositional preaching. At this time, as I said, priests didn't even know Latin, and so the sermons they gave were pitiful, and, uh, and so people didn't understand what the Bible said. But once you can read the Bible and you know what it says, you want to explain the Bible to God's people. And that's exactly what the Reformers did. In fact, Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, he was invited to come be the pastor. And he says, I'll come only if I can preach expositionally, consecutively through the Bible. They said, okay. So he shows up and he begins Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and works his way through the entire New Testament. That was unheard of and unseen. And yet it's what gave life to the church as the word of God was unleashed into the church. And this is what we're committed to as well. That we believe the Bible is God's word, we believe it's an error, and therefore we're going to preach every word of it. Nothing avoided. And we can be thankful that this was recovered too in the Reformation. Well, the final result of the Reformation, the final thing that was recovered in the Reformation was the glory of God was recovered. Now, in one sense, God's glory doesn't need recovering. Uh, his glory, uh, he can, God can take care of his own glory. Uh, by the glory of God recovered, it simply mean that God's glory being appreciated and treasured among his people was brought forth in new and significant ways in the time of the Reformation. And this is where that, that fifth sola comes from, soli deo gloria. means the glory of God alone. This was the ultimate goal with all that all the reformers did. They wanted to see God glorified. They wanted to see him receive the credit and worship that was due to him. And they believed that 
that, that damning gospel of the Roman Catholic Church stole the glory from God. Because if salvation is not by God's grace alone, but includes some merit of someone, then God doesn't receive all the glory because it's not all of His grace. If salvation is not through faith alone, but includes some works, then God doesn't receive all the glory because He doesn't do all of it. If salvation is not through Christ alone, but requires us to gain some righteousness, then Christ doesn't receive all the glory for Him providing all the righteousness. And as we know, God sharing His glory is something that He will not do. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's glory is exclusively His. And that's what the Reformers understood. And so we can be thankful that the glory of God was placed front and center in the ministries and teachings of the Reformers For we stand downstream from them. But likewise, we must carry our torch as well. That we must stand for the glory of God. We cannot let other agendas distract us from making the glory of God seen and treasured by all. Because no other glory compares with that of our triune God. Amen? Glory of no one else can be seen, treasured, and delighted in to eternal satisfaction. Glory of no one else will transform you into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And so we, along with the Reformers, say, Soli Deo Gloria. So we can be thankful. The work of the Reformers recovered the true message of salvation as found in the Bible so that our forebears could continue to preach that from generation to generation. And may we be faithful to carry that baton and preach that true gospel in our day. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the recollection of what you did through the time of the Reformation. We pray, O Lord, that you would please help us to stand strong in our day. That we would treasure the gospel, know the gospel, that we might share the gospel. So that the free gift of God might be known to all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.